New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Dear listener, the following conversation is going to be a wild ride. We'll be covering quantum physics, quantum computing, video games, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, mysticism, and the makeup of the universe and how it affects our daily lives. An essential question in science is, Are we living in a material universe, or do we live in a simulated one? We'll be exploring how the development of video games has affected all fields of human endeavor. Our guest today, Rizwan Virk, grew up on video games. He's experienced and participated in creating these games as they have evolved from simple adventure and arcade games like Donkey Kong and Pac-Man to the current trend of fully 3D, massive, multiplayer, online, role-playing games such as Second Life in Minecraft. Riz, a video game pioneer, sees the connection where computer science has expanded its impact on every other field of science and industry. This technology is joining many different threads in the search for knowledge for ultimate truth, which is restricted not just to science, but includes philosophy and religion. And now we come to the true wild ride. Riz has sought the answers to the questions that investigate computer science video game physics, and spiritual traditions, he has come to believe that we are living in a giant video game that he calls the Great Simulation, because virtual reality appears to be indistinguishable from physical reality. So please do join us for this compelling and provocative dialogue with our guest, Rizwan Verk. Rizwan Verk, known as Riz, is a successful entrepreneur, a video game pioneer, a venture capitalist, and founder of the startup accelerator Play Labs at MIT. His interest and experience and expertise ranges from video games, the metaverse, simulation theory, meditation, consciousness, and the intersection of science, science fiction, religion, and philosophy. He's a graduate of MIT and Stanford and is currently a faculty associate at Arizona State University. 
He's the author of several books, including Zen Entrepreneurship, Walking the Path of the Career Warrior, and Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of Yogi, and The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics agree. We are in a video game. So do please join us for the next hour as we explore the provocative idea that we may be living in a simulated reality with our guest, Rizwan Verk. I'm speaking with Riz from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Riz, welcome. Welcome today to New Dimensions. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be chatting with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, my brain is just buzzing. You've exploded my neurons, I must say. And I know I want to talk with you about the nature of reality. But but first, I want our listeners to know you a bit and to know your pathway of how you came to this and your early games that you played and where you are now. Sure. So, you know, I was a kid when the Atari uh, vi- you know, video game system was the popular uh, console, or the, really the first home console. And we used to play games like Pac-Man back in the day. And even back then, it was this racing game that we would play. And I would wonder, when I looked at the bleachers, whether the people in the bleachers were real. I mean, they were just like little dots, but <laughs> you could tell. And then there was like a, you know, a mountain that looked like Mount Fuji in the background. And I began to wonder, how far does this virtual world go beyond the racetrack? Of course, I didn't know much about computer science or how games were built at the time. Uh, so, you know, as I grew up, I, I, I often wondered about this. And I went to MIT and got a computer science degree and then became an entrepreneur, um, first in enterprise software and then later creating games of my own and, and with my co-founders. Um, and, you know, during those years, I was kind of living a double life where during the day I would be you know, working on my startup. I had employees. We had venture capitalists and investors. And I was out talking to the tech press and, you know, all of the stuff that you do as a CEO in Silicon Valley. Uh, but in the evenings and on the weekends, I'd be, you know, rushing off to some a consciousness exploration seminar, you know, whether it was for shamanic dream work or I went to the Monroe Institute or, uh, you know, which is for out-of-body experiences, uh, all, all of these types of things. But, you know, they were sort of kept separate, sort of these two lives. I, I, I like to joke that it was kind of like Shirley MacLaine in Silicon Valley, where, you know, in the <laughs> 70s, she would go out and dance a show in some European city, and then she would go see a channeler, you know, the next day. <laughs> and it was like a very, a very weird double life. Um but then a few years back, after I sold my last software company, my, my last video game company, I was visiting a company that was making a virtual reality ping pong game. And so, you know, I had this headset on my face and a controller in my hand, and I started playing table tennis. And what happened was that the responsiveness of the game was, was so uh, realistic that it fooled my brain for a moment only, but enough that... I thought I was playing a real game of ping pong, so much so that I tried to put the paddle down on the table, and then I tried to lean on the table. But of course, there was no table. It was all virtual <laughs> reality. And, and there was no paddle. There was just a controller which fell to the floor. And, and, and then I started to realize, oh, you know, we are going to get to the point eventually where VR, virtual reality, is so good in terms of the graphics, but also in terms of the responsiveness 
that we would be able to, uh, we would be unable to distinguish between a virtual and a physical world. Uh, and so I began to speculate about how far in the future that might be, how much AI would we have to develop, uh, and and you know that led me to the idea that we would reach something called the simulation point, which is that point, which led me to something called the simulation hypothesis, which is the idea that we are already inside a video game, and that was of course was the plot of the movie The Matrix from 1999, uh, and and so you know that's kind of how I got to to where I am today. So much comes up for me as you describe all of that, and I want to get into maybe a little later how your view of this computation-based world or quantum informational world, how it differs from the matrix. I want to know what you think about that. But first, I would love to talk a little bit about why, why gaming, why it's so important. I had no idea until I picked up your book because, Riz, I've, I've never done a game. I've never done an online game. I've never played a game. I, 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 I confess, I confess. So I thought, well, why do I need to know all about gaming? But then I realized that the development of all these games was the beginning of it all, and it's ubiquitous. It, help us to understand this metaphor of, of gaming and the simulation hypothesis. Sure, absolutely. So First of all, you may you, you say you've never played a game, but you've probably never played a video game. That doesn't mean you haven't played games. And so there was a professor at MIT that I work with at the MIT Game Lab, and he used to say that play is like the oldest form of social activity, right? We learn it as kids, right? And it's how we learn to interact with other people. Uh, and over the years, the metaphor of a play has been used, going back to the Hindu Vedas, who had the Leela, which is the, the divine play, going back to Shakespeare, uh, who talked about, you know, all the world's a stage and the men and the women are merely players. So again, using that word play, it turns out it even appears in the Quran. So I did this week, last weekend, I was in the UK and I gave a talk on Islam and the simulation hypothesis. And there are verses that I was pointing out that says, basically, uh, where in the Quran, God says, we have set up this world as a sport as a game, as a pastime, as a distraction for you. Uh, and there's this concept of the here and the hereafter. And so you see this metaphor of play, of a game, or of a play like a theater or a stage play has been used from time immemorial. But, you know, with, with, with the rise of video games, which started when I was a kid, you know, the very first widely available video game was actually Pong but from Atari. All the way back in like 1972 or three, I think it was, before they had the home console system, they, they made this game and it was just two squares and a dot. And so what's happened over time is that video games tend to push the hardware uh, and the technology to be better because, you know, most computers weren't built for serious graphics in the beginning, right? And so, so many uh, technologies that we use come about because uh, people wanted to make their games better, right? And so they needed faster computers. Uh, the whole idea of GPUs, graphics processing units, which is uh, a very big, which is a very big market today. It's a type of chip that you have on your computer uh, that allows your computer to render things on your screen faster. Uh, Nvidia is one of the biggest companies in the world, and they make GPUs. Well, that started off as GPUs for video games. That was why. And now today, you hear a lot about AI. 
AI relies on those GPUs in order to be able to do all the computation that's needed for, for today's AI, like chat GPT, et cetera. So if it wasn't for video games, we'd never have gotten the hardware that, that would do that. And video games were some of the first multiplayer. Uh, there, there was a game called Habitat, which was built by Lucasfilm. So, you know, Lucasfilm from Star Wars, uh, way back in the late 1980s, uh, these guys created this online game where you could have a little character called an avatar that would walk around, and, and they were looking for a word to call this character that you controlled. And they went back to the Hindu traditions, and they used the term avatar, because avatar in Sanskrit means to descend. And in this case, it was they were thinking they are in a world, let's say the physical world, and you go through the wire, and you become this little character that's inside this little graphical world. Uh, and they ended up using that term, which I think is interesting that there's all these kind of religious terms that get used, you know, within the game. Even this idea of multiple lives, right? If your character dies, what do you get? You get a multiple life. How many lives do you get? You know? oh, so right, reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think they were necessarily conscious of it, but they ended up using that terminology anyway. Uh, and we still use it today in many cases. But even this game, Habitat, it required Commodore 64s with modems dialing up. But you know, today's internet is based on being able to coordinate you know, large amounts of, and we can chat on the internet with each other. We're talking now. Well, you couldn't really do that before. And so this was one of the first real time environments. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, this is really exciting. Thank you. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Rizwan Virk, and he is the author of Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. And the other book, The Simulation Hypothesis. An MIT computer scientist shows why AI quantum physics and Eastern mystics agree we are in a video game. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Riz Verk. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website. It's zenentrepreneur.com. And he spells his name Rizwan, R-I-Z-W-A-N, Verk, V is in Victor, V-I-R-K. Help me to understand now, all right, we've got these supercomputers now and they're they're really able to do so much. In fact, this morning, I think I even read that Apple is going to come out with a new VR glasses for virtual reality that's going to be better than ever and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it keeps on increasing, increasing in, in the fidelity of 
what we're seeing is is just incredible. Um, so I would love for you to talk about where does this translate into how the reality are the nature of the nature of reality. Let's talk about the nature of reality. Is it material or is it something else? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Apple's new headset is called Vision Pro and it'll be out early next year. And it, it's going to be both an augmented reality and a virtual reality headset. So you can put it on and theoretically you can see giant screens in front of you. Uh, so you may no longer need a computer monitor, for example. Um, but so in, in my in my book, Simulation Hypothesis, I talk about the 10 stages of technology to get to the simulation point. And we're only about halfway there. Uh, and it's because we have AR and VR, but it's not fully photorealistic yet. And, you know, it can fool us, but only for a short period of time. And, and the hardware is still kind of big. You have to put it on your face. You know you're not there. But over time, that'll start to contract and get smaller to the point where you can put on contact lenses or... There's brain-computer interfaces, which beam directly into your brain, uh, which is kind of like what was in the Matrix a little bit, although that was a, a bit scarier version of what a BCI could be. And so, you know, my estimate was that it would take us at most 100 years to get to that point where we can create these ultra-realistic simulations. That's at most, right? The technology is moving so fast, we might get there sooner. And so where does that transition to reality itself? Being a simulation, well, there, there's a, a gentleman at Oxford, a professor of philosophy named Nick Bostrom, and he came up with a paper all the way back in 2003, so just a few years after The Matrix came out, which uh, in which he came up with this argument that said that if anyone ever reaches this point, anyone, meaning any technological civilization, ever reaches the point where they can create full simulations that are indistinguishable reality with AI and simulated beings within them, that they will create lots and lots of those simulations, right? Because when you run a simulation, you don't just run one. Like if I was going to run a simulation of the weather, I might run multiple ones. And then he said, well, in that case, if there's only one base reality, but there's, let's say, a million or a billion different simulated worlds, and you, which cannot be distinguished, by the way, <laughs> between a physical world. And if you are in a world, which are you more likely to be, one or you know, 999 million, 999. And so that's what led Elon Musk in 2016 to say that if our video game technology improves at all, and again, he referenced Pong 40 years ago, which was two squares and a dot. And if it gets advances, even if it takes 100, 1,000, you know, 10,000 years, imagine where computers would be in 10,000 years, okay? I mean, we've only had them for 50 years, right, so far. Uh, he said that if, if, if that happens, then the chances that we are not in a simulation is one in billions, right? Which means the chances that we are in base reality is what is what it's called, is one in billions, which means the chances if we are in a simulation is billions to one. So the idea that we might be in a simulated reality is a one to a billion? I'm not understanding. Oh, okay. The, okay. So basically, it's saying that if we can get there, to that point where we can create these ultra realistic simulations, somebody has probably already gotten there, another civilization, okay, that has already created millions of these simulations, right? And so there's millions of simulations. There's only one physical world. And if you're in a world 
statistically speaking, what are the chances you're in one out of a million, right? Do you see what I'm saying? So are you uh, saying like, like it's a multi or parallel universes? Is, is well, that? Well, they could be. Yeah, they could be like multiple parallel universes, right? But the idea is it's sort of a weird statistical argument that he came up with. And this is not the only reason I think we're in a simulation, but this is one of the ones that gets talked a lot. So I always bring it up first, which is that if we can reach there in 100 years, suppose there was a civilization that's a million years older than us, right? They already got there a long time ago, <laughs> and they already created a whole bunch of, of simulations. And who's to say we're not already inside their simulation? So we're, we could be tapping into someone else's, another created simulation by another race of people or whatever, a race of whatever, or, you know, another right. dimension. Who knows? Another dimension, a spiritual dimension. Uh, right. It's very much possible that what we think of, I mentioned the Quran earlier, right? And it's pretty much all major religions, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, uh, have this idea that the physical world is not the real world, right? So when I started to investigate these different religions, I realized, oh, that's kind of what they're telling us, that this is a game. It's a sort of play, if you will, uh, and, and sometimes they'll use different metaphors. They'll use metaphors like the dream as a metaphor. What happens when you wake up? You thought it was real. And then when I looked at quantum physics, you know, I realized that what the physicists are telling us is that there is no such thing as physical matter, right? The more they try to find it, they can't find it, right? If you think of this table that's in front of me, it's mostly empty space with some molecules and some atoms. And you look inside the atom, it's mostly empty space. And then you say, well, the, nu the nucleus is there. Well, you go into that and then there's these subatomic particles. It's like those Russian nested dolls, right? I forget what they're called, right? But you keep opening the dolls <laughs> and this, you get a smaller one and then there's nothing there at the bottom. And so this is what led you know, physicist John Wheeler, who was one of the, the giants of 20th century physics, you know, he worked with folks like Einstein uh, and Niels Bohr. Bohr right. uh, and he died, you know, not that long ago. Uh, and he said that physics went through three phases in his life. In the first phase, they thought everything was a particle. So they thought that, you know, everything was like a hard, like a hard, like a ball, like a, you know, a hard ball. And they're right next to us. And then they realized that's not the case. Uh, and then he said they thought everything was a field. So they tried to use like electromagnetic fields and quantum fields. And where he came to towards the end of his life, uh, uh, he said that basically everything was information. That when you get down to this thing that we call a particle, right? There's actually no such thing called a particle. <laughs> that the particle is basically an answer to a series of yes or no questions, right? And I, when you think of an answer of yes or no, that's two possible values. That is the smallest unit of information called a bit, right? A bit has two values, a zero or a one, right? And so basically he said, he made up this phrase, which he coined it, it's pretty interesting, called it from bit. And he says, if you're looking at something that is an it, it's a physical object, like, uh, you know, you're drinking a glass of water, you think that's an it. But actually, if you went all the way down to the atoms and the, and the subatomic particles, it's a series of bits that you can take those bits, and that is what makes up 
you know, that's what distinguishes one particle from another is the answer to these questions. And there are things like quantum spin and there's all these other things. Well, I, Riz, I, I want to make a comment here that like at the turn of this century that we're now in, a lot of people were talking about, oh, this is the age of information. And I think that many of us look at, and you're helping me to see this more clearly, look at the age of information as, oh, we have access to all this data. We can go on Google and we can, we can look up places and people and concepts and all sorts of things. And that's like data information. We have that. But what you're talking about, I think is, you know, I'm a lay person. I don't know the terminology. So I'm going to say it's quantum information. And that's different. Well, all right, let's go to quantum physics. In quantum physics, there are some problems, I think, in quantum physics. Two of two of the major ones is one, they it can't tell us where consciousness comes from. It doesn't have a clue about that. That's a hard problem of quantum physics. But secondly, is a mysterious uh, entanglement and non-locality. And this defies because if we if we're describing the universe mathematically. And that's what we've done for a long time now. I mean, we you can put a formula of math and you can figure out everything because it's all based on the speed of light, which is constant. However, there is something that defies that. So I intuitively feel like this is important. Yeah, this is very important. So, you know, we're talking about information quantum information, but we're also talking about a new idea in physics, right, which is digital physics, which is looking at the world as made up of information. So, for example, I talked about, you know, drinking some water in a cup. Well, now we have 3D printers, and 3D printers can actually print out a cup based on what? Based on a model of what that cup should look like. And then it'll basically assemble, you know, these little dots of plastic in just the right way that it'll create an actual cup. If you've ever seen uh, the show Star Trek, The Next Generation. I was just right, thinking have- about a replicator and so I'm a real Trekkie fan. All right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Picard would always say, you know, T, Earl Grey, hot. And the replicator would basically <laughs> replicate, create the cup and the tea. And we're almost at that point, right? We can create the cup. But we can't quite create the T yet, but there are 3D printers. But my point there is that the the distinction between physical information and digital information, uh, physical object and digital information are becoming blurred. Like when you watch a, a when you watch a movie, like say there's a the new Dune movie coming out, right? Or the recent Indiana Jones film that came out, or the recent Star Wars films, uh, the effects are getting pretty good to the point where it's hard to tell what is physical and what is digital because they're being merged together. But the reason we can talk to you, so first of all, we're not really talking to each other right now, are we? I'm talking to my computer, which is transforming my voice to bits, and it is sending the bits to your computer, and you have a local rendering device. So we are already virtual in many ways. (laughs) Yes, true. 
The only reason that this information can be sent over the wire for watching videos and 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 uh, uh, audio is because of a guy named Claude Shannon, who's considered the father of information. He was at uh, Bell Labs and MIT back in the 40s and 50s, and you know he came up with information. He was the father of information theory, which is uh, about compressing of information. Turns out physicists are using information theory to talk about how information is compressed and, and sent or lost. We're going to have to talk more about that because I know it's an important part of this whole conversation. I'm here with Riz Burke, and he is the author of The Simulation Hypothesis, as well as Wisdom of a Yogi. So uh, if you want to know more about him, you can go to his website, zenentrepreneur.com or go to newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rizwan Verk, and we're talking about the great simulation of, of reality that we might be living in. What I want to ask you, when I really looked into and read your book and really went into this and started to understand how when new concepts come up, especially in science, but also in philosophy and other ways, when it comes up, there is usually a big resistance. We can go back to Galileo and, and when he said, okay, hey, the earth is not the center of the universe. And he got put in prison and he got censured by the Catholic Church and so forth. And we're still doing that. But what I'm intuiting right now is even if we don't fully understand this, what you call the simulation hypothesis, which is the name of your book, even if we don't quite understand it yet, I think about it, we're on the scent, like a dog tracking its prey, you know, like there are, are indications and there are many people that are actually following those indications. So to just reject and say, oh, this is stupid. This is awful. We're not living in some video game. Are you kidding? I mean, I can hear a lot of people saying that. Uh, but, you know, there's something here that's indicating something to us. And that's what I'm excited about. And I'm excited about you and others that are saying, okay, let's follow this. Do we have any any indication that show us that something is going on like this? Well, you know, if we think of a video game, what is a video game? It is really information that is sent over the internet. And that information gets rendered for us, right, when we need to. So if you and I are in a video game together, 
we're not really seeing the same thing, but we think we are because our we are rendering it on two different screens. Well, you know, it turns out that there's a big mystery in, in quantum mechanics, and you talked about entanglement as one of the big mysteries. The other big mystery is uh, what's called quantum indeterminacy or the observer effect, right? Which I know you have talked about with many folks on your show before as well. And I think the best way to illustrate it is to use Schrodinger's cat as an example, right? And that's a thought experiment by Erwin uh, Schrodinger, one of the founders of quantum physics. And he says, if there's a cat in a box with some radioactive material, is the cat alive or dead after an hour? Well, it's we say it's a 50% chance. The thing is to us, Common sense tells us that, yeah, the cat is either alive or dead. We just don't know because we haven't looked. But it has to be one of those things. It can't be both of those things. And the weird thing that quantum mechanics is telling us, and this is what led Niels Bohr, one of the founders of, of, of quantum physics, to say that if you are not shocked by the quantum theory, you have not understood it. <laughs> and what it's saying is that the cat is both alive and dead. At the same time, until someone observes and then records that observation in some way, which means that both of those realities exist. And so that's called a superposition, meaning there's two possible positions, alive and dead. And the cat, which in this case is standing in for what I, what I would consider a bit of information, is, is both of those until it, you look at it. And then you see one of those. So we refer to that as the collapse of the probability wave. There's actually an alternate theory called the multiverse theory, which we can talk about in a minute, which also ties to this. But nobody knows why this happens, right? We say, well, there's a probability and one of those gets rendered. Uh, and so in video games, turns out we do this all the time. We have lots of probabilities of what might happen. And what we do is we optimize so that we don't have to render the entire world at once. So if my character is in a video game, like imagine that racing game I was telling you about, uh, I only have to show what you can see around the car. I don't have to show what's on another planet. I don't have to show anything else until my character gets there and then I can render just that part of the world. And so there's something we call optimization, uh, conditional rendering, and it's an optimization technique. So most of computer science, and particularly if you have to implement something in computers, is actually about optimizing and reducing the amount of information. And this is why I like to say that uh, computer science and information theory is eating the rest of the sciences, because many <laughs> sciences which we thought were physical, like genetics. Well, genetics, the, the idea of the gene was actually proposed by a computer scientist named von Neumann well before they actually discovered the physical DNA, right? And so there's all these areas of molecular informatics, uh, and all of this stuff is about information. And computer science is all about how do you reduce the information? How do you send it? How do you re-render it? That's why I can watch Game of Thrones, you know, on my on my phone, because it's going over the wire. But 30 years ago, you couldn't send that much exactly, information. Exactly. All right. Let's say if I am in a simulation right now, and there are many probabilities available to me, but I'm picking out one probability. So my probability is to be having this conversation with you. So maybe 
nothing else is there except what I'm observing right now. And beyond that observation uh, is what? Am I just, I'm trying to hold this as, how is this possible? And how is it the, the observer takes the probability, the possibility into something more seemingly concrete? Right. Well, this is where the video game metaphor actually helps to understand. Oh, right? So so this is what quantum mechanics is telling us, is that there are both of these possibilities, but then we see only one of them when there's an observer. Now, in a video game, suppose that there's like a, a dragon uh, or an eagle that's going to show up, right? And the video game decides like what's going to happen. And my computer renders it based on, and it decides based on the choices that I make. So if I turn left, I'm going to see the dragon. If I turn right, I'm going to see the eagle. But it's not until I make that choice and put my character there that it has to draw the dragon or the eagle. Like it doesn't have to draw the eagle if I go in this direction. It's kind of available, but it doesn't render itself until you make the choice. That's exactly right. So we render only that which can be observed in video games. Pretty much what quantum mechanics is telling us. Okay, so isn't this like one of the objections that people have to, oh, this can't work because if you're going to render the whole universe as a video game, then you'd have to have as many things as atoms in the universe or something like that. And and they say, no, that's impossible. But so what you're talking about is the way video games work. They optimize what is being needed at the moment. And the rest is just sort of uh, in the wings. Let's say if it's a theater piece, <laughs> they're in the wings or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly what video game developers do and computer scientists do. Right? Physicists tend to use the brute force method sometimes. but Computer scientists are all about optimization. So if I said to you, I'm going to have a fully 3D rendered world like Fortnite, which I don't know if any of your listeners play, but maybe their kids do, right? Yeah, no, they might. They might vary. That's pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in the 1980s, on my Commodore 64, I'd say, okay, we're going to make Fortnite. And they'd say, you can't do it because we just can't keep track of all those you know, pixels and we can't render them. And therefore, it, it can't be done. Well, turns out it can be done. But the way that it can be done is, one, we have better hardware. But two, more important than the hardware is this idea of optimization and 3D models. And so 3D models render only that piece of the world that you need to see at any given time. Uh, and that's why I keep saying you know, video games drive computation in many ways. Uh, and so that's one of the ways in which you know, uh, uh, what we're really talking about is an information-based world that gets rendered. Okay. And then that rendering sits there. Okay. If it's a rendered world or uh, a simulated world, okay, then uh, what is outside of it? What's running it? What is the base reality? Who is God? <laughs> you know, or, you know, whatever it is that belief system we might have or feel, but still, who's running the game? Well, you know, that's the big question, isn't it? <laughs> right. And 
it depends on your point of view and, and where you're coming and whether you're looking at this from a, a religious perspective or you're looking at it from a, uh, you know, kind of computer science or other physical per sciences perspective. And there's actually two slightly different versions of the simulation hypothesis. They're not actually different. They're more like a continuum. Okay, and these versions are the NPC version, which stands for non-player character. So an NPC is like an AI within the game. Like if I'm battling an orc or if I'm, or you're watching The Sims, right? The Sims, they are AIs controlled by code in inside uh, the computer. Or the RPG version, which stands for role-playing game version. And in a role-playing game, you are the player and you have a character that you are identifying with, right? So you exist outside of the game and you exist inside the game in a limited, smaller form that can't see or realize what's outside of the video game itself and these are actually more of a continuum because in something like world of warcraft you can have both you can have player characters who are like the, the players and then you can have the non-player characters and so depending on when you're looking at that uh you, you get slightly different answers but i like to ask oh, two questions one is why do we play video games in the first place and then the second question is, why do we run simulations, right? Uh, so looking at the second question, we run simulations in order to figure out what might happen, right? Like the simulation of the weather or the simulation of a pandemic, right? But when you run a simulation, you don't run it just once. You run it multiple times. But the basic idea is that you are trying to figure out what is the most likely outcome or what is the most optimal outcome. Like you would actually run it, run it to figure that out. Now, there's a concept in computer science, uh, which was introduced by a guy named Stephen Wolfram, uh, who's a physicist who became a computer guy. Uh, and he calls it computational irreducibility. And what he says is that there are certain processes that are chaotic. So you may have heard of chaos theory uh, or complexity theory, that you can't predict what's going to happen at step 1000. What you have to do is get to step 999 and see what's actually going to happen. And you can't see what's going to happen at 999 unless you get to step 998, which means you have to run the whole damn thing, right? Oh, before I love it. I love it. I, I'm going to have to interrupt you. But I am reminded when you just said that of uh, something I learned uh, recently with another guest um, about it's called quenched disorder. Are you familiar with that term? I, oh, I haven't I, heard I, that term. Okay, I, I'll tell you about it in a moment. I'm here with Rizwan Verk, and he is the author of Wisdom of a Yogi, uh, which is also the subtitle Lessons for Modern Seekers. Oh, that's so great. For Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi, and then also The Simulation Hypothesis. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you. 
I'm here with Rizwan Burke. And just to quickly say, because I mentioned it before the uh, break, is quench disorder is like if there's an ant colony and they all follow the same trail and same trail, and then there's one ant that starts to go a different direction. And that direction will is what enlivens the whole ant colony because it will find new sources of food once that is depleted. If they keep going the same place, they'll deplete that food source. So quench disorder is what it's called. And that's kind of, I think, what you were talking about, about possibilities, probabilities, and moving into other things. But I really want to talk about the intersection where you have brought computer science. We are not used to bringing science does not is not used to bringing science and religion together or science and spirituality or mysticism together so help us to know how these two things are starting to blend yeah absolutely so you know i talked earlier about how uh, religions will use metaphors of reality and one of the 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 most famous is that of a dream, and you wake up from the dream, and, it, and you don't realize it was a dream at the time. In fact, in Buddhism, you know the word Buddha, the root is the Sanskrit word but, which means awake. Uh, and if if he's awake, that means every the rest of us must have been sleeping. And so, you know, this is where when I looked at what Yogananda said in Autobiography of a Yogi, which some of your listeners may have read, it was one of the most popular spiritual books uh, in the West in the 20th century. It was read by people like Steve Jobs, for whom it was the only book in his iPad when he passed away. Uh, George Harrison used to give away copies of it. Uh, Steve Jobs even gave away copies of it at his funeral. You know, Yogananda was a bit of a modernizer. He would take the old yogic stories and traditions and he would use modern techniques and he ruffled a lot of feathers uh, in India from the traditionalists from the way he would teach, but he, he used an updated metaphor. Uh, and he was wondering about the suffering of the world, particularly in seeing World War I uh, images. And he had a vision where he was actually there fighting and he got killed as a soldier. And he was like, Lord, why do you permit such suffering in the world? And he got a very clear answer back. And he said, well, Think of the world as a motion picture, right? And a motion picture was new. There was a new technology at the time. And you would project onto the screen and light and shadow would create this scene and it would seem real to you. Uh, and it would seem like the actors were suffering, but the actors were not actually suffering. It was a key part of the actual storyline. And so, you know, he got this message, you know, what are life and death within the cosmic dream, right? That these are just, uh, relativities within this cosmic dream. And so that was a metaphor he used when people were, were wondering about things that were happening in their lives. And so I believe if Leo Yogananda were alive today, he would use an updated metaphor. He would use the latest technology, right? So he would say, it's like a motion picture, except we all are kind of, you know, we have the ability to change the picture. So we have our own script and we're all playing in the movie together, but we're also watching each other at the same time. Well, what does that sound like? Today, it sounds like uh, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, an MMORPG. <laughs> so I believe if Yogananda were alive today, he would say, we are in an interactive video game uh, and that there's a part of you that's outside of the video game uh, and there's a part of you that's inside the video game in the same way that there's one of us. And so, you know, when I began to explore different traditions, 
one of the things that came up was the the, the life review and the near death experience. So right, people who've had near death experiences report uh, seeing their entire life not just flash in front of them, but actually seeing a holographic 360 degree panoramic life review, meaning they're replaying everything as if it was recorded and they're replaying it from the point of view of other people inside the game or, or inside the world. And so as an engineer and computer scientist, I think, well, how, how would that work? Well, we do it all the time with video games, right? We stream uh, onto you know Twitch, one of my nephews, when he was three years old, used to tell my brother, I want to watch that Star Wars game. And he would be a YouTube recording of people playing the Star Wars video game, for an example, right? And so that tends to tie, like in the Quran and in the Bible, they have recording angels who sit there and record everything that happens. Well, that's a metaphor. It doesn't mean there's like a physical book and what are they going to write it in Arabic, Chinese, English, right? What it means is that you somehow have to look at the things that you did in your life uh, and that is part of the reckoning. And in Islam, it's called the scroll of deeds. Again, that's a metaphor. A scroll is a metaphor because 2,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago, you couldn't tell them it's like a movie or it's like a video game. But today, it's very much like a video game in that you can replay an entire game from any point of view. And if you put on a VR headset, it'll seem like you're that other person. And so, you know, when HarperCollins India wanted to write uh, something about the 75th anniversary of Autobiography of Yogi, they turned to me and asked me to write a modern reinterpretation of many of the stories in Autobiography of Yogi. That book has stories like levitating saints. You have people appear bilocating in different places. You have teleportation. You have psychic phenomenon. You have palaces being created out of thin air. You have genies that are being controlled. <laughs> and you have all these, these stories, right? And what, what are we to think of these stories? And do these stories still apply today? I mean, Autobiography Yogi was quite popular with a certain generation, but a lot of kids today look at this 500-page book and you know that's not so well-known. And so I wrote something that's more along the lines of bringing these ideas of simulation theory uh, into uh, the old yogic concepts. And so bringing them together to say, you know, that the world is like an interactive video game and some of the challenges that we face, they're more like quests and achievements. So if you play a video game today, you don't just play the game like going around the track all the time and that's all you do. There are these things called quests and then there are certain achievements and you accept those quests. And if you do, sometimes they're multiplayer quests. You end up doing, you know, goals that you achieve with other people, which is very much like karma. So isn't in the video game world, there is a place, somehow they're keeping track of the quests that you've done. So there is kind of a marking like a, an angel, you know, writing your deeds and quests and, and so say something about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that is information that appears not in the rendered world, like you don't see it, but it's there somewhere. And in Silicon Valley, we say it's in the cloud, which is ah. an interesting metaphor. Uh, and turns out that cloud is where information is stored about what we did in the past and what we might do in the future. And we have uh, what I call a database, right? It's a database of quests that you might want to participate in in this life. And a database of everybody has a database. So everyone has their quest, and sometimes you have to do the quests together. And so that becomes a way to understand what is karma and how is karma used to pick and choose what types of experiences you, know, you might have in the next gameplay session, but also 
you might have a whole list of those, right? And, you know, there's some difference, like in the Buddhist and Hindu traditions about what is the soul? Is there such a thing as a soul? Whereas in Hinduism, there is this soul, which is like a player and goes back in and takes on a different actor, different role, a different character or avatar. So there, the soul is downloaded and at birth, you know, there's a download, right? Exactly. And, and it's a process referred to in certain religions as insolment, right? And I say, well, it's think of it like what I told you earlier about the ping pong game, right? It's the point at which you put on the virtual reality glasses and you forget what you were doing before. Right. And now you can only perceive what's inside there because it's so realistic right. that you forget about it. Now, the, the word Maya, the Sanskrit word Maya, usually gets translated as illusion. And it is. But there's a there's some uh, subtleties to it, which is it's like a carefully crafted illusion. Meaning like if you go to watch a magic show, okay, you know the guy's doing illusions on the stage. Right. But you don't want to think about that all the time. No, you want to enjoy the show. Yeah, exactly. I, I need to ask you, Riz, okay, how can we use all that you have said this this entire time? How can we use it? for the well-being for ourselves and for the planet. Is there a use for any of this? So what? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, remember that everybody else is a player and a character as well, right? And what you do to them matters <laughs> because it is part of their experience and you are going to have to relive that experience and it's going to be replayed back for you. Just like it says in some scripture, but also like the near-death experiences are telling us. Uh, the, the other big uh, takeaway for me personally is that sometimes you know things happen in our lives which aren't that great like we have bad financial issues uh, we have a lot of health issues particularly relationship issues uh some people are born with you know defects and and you know it's easy to get into the why me why did this happen to me but if you think of it in terms of a video game and you think of it as a series of quests that possibly you chose to have an experience that is more difficult you know, sometimes we look at other people and say, that guy has it so easy, you know, uh, and, and sometimes people say this to me, oh, I know this isn't a simulation because if it was, I would have made myself a billionaire. I would have given myself everything <laughs> right, I wanted. Right. And, and well, it turns out that there's, uh, you know, uh, in the Matrix, uh, there was this kind of weird world and they said in the first version of the Matrix, everything was blissful, but the human mind didn't accept it. Like it was no fun. Uh, there's uh, the guy who created Pong and Atari, Nolan Bushnell used to say, you know, make the game easy to play, but difficult to master. Ah. And that is a great metaphor for life. Like it's easy to play, you just have to be here, but it's difficult to master. And perhaps there's more difficulty levels, right? And so, you know, somebody who's born with a disability might have a higher difficulty level than right. someone who isn't. And they may have chosen to, to, to have that quest. That's a way to not let things bother you so much, I guess, is, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. Perspective. Yeah. To stay in the game. Yeah. Uh, Riz, uh, we've, we've covered a, just a brief little snippet of all that you have discovered and people can pick up the book and really find so much more. Thank you so much for being with us. I, I just want to let our listeners know I've been here with Rizwan Verk, and he spells his last name V as in Victor, I-R-K, Rizwan Verk, and he's the author of The Simulation Hypothesis, and also Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. And to know more about him, go to his website, zinentrepreneur.com, or go to the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org.
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3793. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.